First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is Cameron and Amanda Wolf, and um, it has been my privilege to get to know them over the last couple of months. Uh, this couple, it's been so refreshing because they are seeing that and understanding that Christ's righteousness apart from themselves. They have uh, neither one of them grown up in and around the church, and in their journey up to this point today, and that's what they see that as. This is not necessarily about pinning something on an event or something they've done. So far, to this point, they've seen the journey. They've, seen a, they've had a front row seat to God's sovereignty, grace, forgiveness, via families here at Cross Point. They've had that front row seat via you. They've had relationships with people from Cross Point. And then they came the last eight or so months, and they've been on this journey. And I've seen them and gotten to know them that they're resting. They're resting in Christ's sufficiency, and they're admitting their own inadequacy. And so when we went to that passage the other night, I think Cameron's statement was, wow, that's really cool. And I want, I'm ready for that, I think is what he said. And so this couple comes today crying out to God for a good conscience, crying out to say, we can't save ourselves. Only through the resurrection of Jesus will, be, will we be saved. You ready? Ready. <laughs> Cameron, do you have any hope of life, salvation, from your condition as a sinner, apart from Christ's complete and finished work on the cross? No, sir. Then I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bend your knees. <laughs> Amanda, do you have any hope of salvation or life from your sinful condition apart from the finished work of Christ? No, sir. And I baptize you now, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Y'all pray with me for uh, Cameron and Amanda. Father, we are grateful for your sufficiency this morning that through the resurrection of Christ and through a watery ordeal, you say we're yours. We're thankful for that. And we're resting in it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. to this sermon, I want us to pray together that um, this sermon would be clear and that the gospel would be central. And uh, I also want to pray for another church in our area. So if you would pray with me now before we get into the sermon. 
Father, we are uh, rejoicing this morning in so many ways and resting in so many ways as we see you seem to continue to draw hearts to yourself and to your salvation and to your name for your glory. Thank you for Cameron and Amanda this morning. We give you the praise for the work and the fruit that we're seeing because we know it's your work. Help us continue to sow obediently and consistently the gospel truth. I pray this morning would be more of that. The sermon would be clear and gospel-centered and Jesus-exalting and very little else. And God, we um, pray for Commerce Community Church and David Ferguson as he's coming off a pretty rough week. God, my prayer for David this morning is that he is resting in your sufficiency for all things. Even unbelievably difficult circumstances. And at the same time, you're giving him the strength to fight the good fight. So that he is both resting and ready to fight and keep on fighting. For the people of Commerce Community Church and for that city. I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for the way he exposes the word. I'm thankful for the way he's leading his family. I pray that you would keep him there. That he would hold faith in a good conscience today and this week and the rest of this summer. That you would keep him in the faith. And that you would do that via Christ's resurrection. We're dependent upon you and we... uh, Give this worship service and the rest of this time together over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at verses 12 through 17 of 1 Timothy 1. And in light of men who were in the church attempting to be impressive and gain a following at the expense of preaching the central core truth of the gospel that we are inadequate and Jesus is sufficient. At the expense of that, they've worked very hard at gaining a following and being impressive and according to the first part of this chapter, going on and on about really nothing. Making great assertions about things they don't know anything about. And so in light of that, Paul's response is he completely drops his pose and admits his inadequacy and he rests in the sufficiency and the perfect patience and mercy of Christ. That's it. And so we were reminded last week of our need to remember, revisit, to go back to the core. And the core is we are inadequate and Jesus and his cross and his work are finished and they are sufficient. And so we don't move on from that. We don't progress past that. We don't at 90 need less grace than we did at 20. And so actually progressing is going back. We go back to the same gospel truth over and over and over. And that's what Paul does continually through his letters. And so we found that we need to go back and rest. We get tired. Lots of things make us tired. Our own efforts make us tired. And so we, everything goes through Christ's sufficiency. All of our effort, all of our fighting goes through his sufficiency. And so we were reminded last week to rest in our inadequacy and Christ's sufficiency. In his perfect patience. And Paul ends this chapter, well, ends this portion. It's a chapter now in your Bible. 
this portion of his letter, he turns and kind of wraps up this section with not just resting, but basically telling Timothy, if you're going to do this, if you're going to preach this and keep this central, uh, you got to fight on your hands. Get ready, because you're in for a fight. So let's read verse 18 through 20. Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That's the central part of this passage that we'll look at today. Wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's some interesting phrases used here. Um, handed over to Satan, waging good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience that we're going to explain. Don't be intimidated by those like you can't understand those or you've never heard those before. Just hang in there with me and we're going to show via the first part of this chapter we'll explain a lot of that. And then we'll pull in some other passages. Here's where I want to go today. We're going to look quickly at, again, this charge that he's given Timothy. And then we're going to look at the fight. What are we to be fighting? What is involved in this warfare? And it's a fight here, not just, listen to me clearly, not just fighting sin, not just fighting flesh. Most of us are aware that we are in a battle. Our nature, the flesh, is in a battle and a war with the spirit within us. Yes, that is the battle. That's not particularly the fight that Paul is speaking of here. We are in the fight against sin. In fact, we're instructed to kill it, not just fight it. So yes, there is a battle going on. The specific battle he's talking about here is fighting for sound doctrine. And that's where we're headed. Fighting for sound doctrine, holding to faith, and a good conscience. And then we're going to look at the shipwrecked faith. What is this charge he's talking about? Look at verse 18 again. This charge I entrust to you. He's he's ramping things up for Timothy here. He's reminding him, I've just charged you to do something. This is instruction. This is like 1 Timothy 4 says, command and prescribe. You have authority. You do these things in the church. Do this, Timothy. This is not a suggestion. He charges him with something. And that charge is back in 3 through 5. Turn turn back to the first part of this chapter at 3 through 5. He's been charged with staying at the church in Ephesus. That's part of the charge. Stay there. That you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the charge. Timothy, you stay in that church. Don't leave. You're needed, and I want you to help purify what's going on there, and I want you to help prune what's happening, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell the people 
that are teaching and preaching who have influence over that church, I want you to tell them the ones that are not preaching centrally that their inadequacy and God's sufficiency through Jesus, tell them to be quiet, to stop. The ones that are going on and on about genealogies, really making themselves look like they know a lot about the law, they come with lots of maybe Bible knowledge. They come with a lot of facts. They may have some really cool charts. They may have made some really interesting projections about the future. And Paul says, you tell them to stop. And if they don't stop and repent from it, kick them out. This is important, this fight for sound doctrine. It's important. And so that's the charge that he's given. Tell people to stop. And the second half of that charge is, if you're going to really love these people in this church, you have to love them with the gospel. So if you're going to stand before them and preach, if you're going to stand before them and expose these truths and even maybe facts and stories and poems and history, if you're going to unpack those things, don't forget... That at the core of the poetry and the prophecy and the narratives and the revelation and the letters, at the core of all of it, it's all about one truth. Our inadequacy and God's sufficiency via Jesus. So you can, you can go all these places in the Bible, lose that false teaching. Don't do it. And this is where you'll go. You'll try and use the Bible to be impressive and gain a following. It's going to happen, and it's happening in Ephesus. Stay there. If you really love these people, give them the gospel. And then the next time you gather, if you really love them, give them the gospel again. And if you really love these people, if you're going to keep loving these people when they come back, love them with that central gospel truth again. Jesus is sufficient. You are not. And when, when you come down 10 years into it, 10 years into this church, if you're still loving them, what you will be giving them in 10 years is still the gospel. Again, this central truth drives everything that we do if we are really loving you, if we're really loving the church. That's love. Preach the gospel. And in order to do that, in order to rest in that myself, in order to lead you to rest in that, we have to fight. We have to fight to keep that rest. We have to fight to enter that rest and stay in it. So what Paul is saying is here, get ready, you're in, you're in for a fight. You're going to be contending for things. You're going to be contending primarily for this central truth. You're going to be in a battle. Yes, we're resting in Christ today. I hope that that's what this day is about for you, is resting and worshiping in his sufficiency. And yet at the same time, we're called to fight for that rest. Wage good warfare. There's a beautiful illustration in Luke 13. Turn there. Turn to Luke 13. To kind of give you a better picture, let's listen to what Jesus said about this resting and yet striving to enter and stay in and rest in him. And he's explaining with some parables what the kingdom of God is like, what the church is like, what what being in his invisible kingdom is like. And along the trail... They ask him, okay, so how many? I think that's so interesting that based on what Paul is charging these men with in 1 Timothy 1, they're asking Jesus, okay, how big is this thing going to be? 
How many are going to get saved? How impressive is this going to be, Jesus? We want to know. We want to know. What's this going to look like? How many are, going to, are you going to gather? How many? That's the question. Look at verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They're on to something. And he said to them, strive, fight, battle, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence. I was at the church a lot. I went to VBS every summer. And you taught in our streets. I grew up in a town where there were churches everywhere. I knew a lot of Christians. I talked to them. I was friends with them. You taught in our street. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. There's, a, there's something missing here. We're around Jesus, we're around the church, we're around the Bible, we're, it's, it's, it's infecting some of our life, but there's one thing missing here. They don't know Jesus. They don't trust and believe Jesus. And look what he says in verse 29. And the people will come from where? All over, from the east and the west, north and the south, and they will recline. You hear rest? They're going to recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And what does he start with? Fight for this. Strive. Strive to enter through this narrow gate. How do you do that? You trust Jesus. Well, I already know that, but what else? I mean, what else you got? What? I know, but what now? Trust Jesus. And we need that reminder that that is what we fight for. We fight to keep it there. Do you see it? That, that's the fight and the battle we're in, to keep going back, to keep it there, to enter through the narrow gate, Jesus. And if we do that, as we fight to enter and remember and remind ourselves and revisit our inadequacy and his sufficiency, rest at his table. We're going to eat in a minute. The table will be set. It is set, and it will be served. And we dine with the king of ages, and we rest in the meal, in him and his sufficiency. But we strive to keep going back there and not making it about us. Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive to enter the rest so that you don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is that same sort of disobedience? Not listening and not believing in Jesus. It's disobedient for you to be around spiritual or be around the way it's called now. Uh, if you look for Christian stuff, just look in the inspirational section. If you're, if you're an inspirational person or you're around inspirational things and spiritual things or around Christian things and they're around the culture and yet you haven't listened 
to this central core truth that you are inadequate and Jesus is sufficient, you're not listening and you're not believing and you'll fall. And the work for us is to strive to enter that rest of his sufficiency. According to Paul in this text, the main thing we're to be fighting for is this sound doctrine. And so let's look at this fight for sound doctrine. Remember the charge. Keep it simple from the outset. Keep this simple gospel truth central. Jesus came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. His great patience and mercy is on display. Sound doctrine. Let me read it again. here's, Here's what Paul is teaching in this chapter. How do you fight sound doctrine? You keep this simple truth central. Jesus came to save sinners. I am the foremost. His great patience and mercy is put on display. That's sound doctrine. Sound doctrine for Paul is maybe a lot more simple than we think. When I use that phrase, sound doctrine, some of you, me included, think about systems. And while it is very systematic and it is very interconnected and there are a lot of particulars to this gospel, there are a lot of avenues and facets, and that's, that's what we come to rediscover and, and discover for the first time, those are the things that mature us and keep us in the faith. But not when they get away from this central truth. And so sound doctrine for Paul is pretty simple. Foremost of sinners... Jesus is unbelievably merciful and patient. That's sound doctrine. Keep it right there. That's sound. That's good. That's true. That's dependable. For, for us to think that maybe, um, maybe, maybe you're thinking maybe elders and deacons, they, they fight for sound doctrine. But me, I don't, I don't know doctrine. I don't, know, I don't read those kind of books. And you are called to fight for this. You will have to fight for this. To return and keep this central in your life, in your parenting, in your work. This is an important fight. Let me show you two two interesting facts here. To show you how important this is. Number one. Every New Testament letter encourages this. Every one of them. Every epistle, every letter at some point encourages us to... Fight, strive, or make every effort to keep sound doctrine central. This is a good fight. It's an important fight. The entire history of the church, after about 100 years after Christ, from then until now, it has been a contending, there has been a contending in the church to keep this central. There's been a constant drifting in our, in our church history. A drifting from this truth. There's, there's been an, an, an adding of things. There's been a not wanting to emphasize certain things. And so there's always this going back. There's always this reform. There's always been a reform. That we have to go back. Keep this central. And, and keep this our inadequacy and Christ's sufficiency. As our lens as we look at the rest of the implications of the gospel. We don't move off of that and gather these other Facets. And that's been the contention in the history of the church. So we are in a fight. We've been in a fight to keep this central. We will be in a fight until he comes back and glorifies and perfects us all. This will be our fight, to fight for sound doctrine. It's important. 
There has never been a time when we haven't been in danger of falling into error. And so we're given a charge to keep this central. Wage good warfare. How do you know what to fight for? There are a, there are a myriad of thoughts. Think about this for a minute. As you come to this worship service, think about how you approach your parenting. Think about those thousands of thoughts that will run through your mind as you head into work tomorrow. Or as the kids home from school now, all the things that are in your mind, what you're going to have to do for the day, how you're going to parent them. Maybe many of our thoughts are, how am I going to share the gospel? How am I going to be a good Christian? Let's just say it that way. That's probably the phrase we think of the most. How am I going to trust Jesus today? And in that thinking, in those thoughts about how am I going to share with people at work? How am I going to share? How am I going to tell my, my children about Jesus? How am I going to tell them the gospel? In those thoughts, are you remembering this fight? Or are you thinking, what I really want, what I really want is for a lot of people at work to, to understand the gospel. I really just want a lot of people to get it. Jesus. So these people in your kingdom, are they going to be few? And that's our thought. I just want as many people as possible. That's my thinking when I consider the gospel and how I'm taking it to work. When I consider the gospel and how I'm taking it to my children. When I consider the gospel and I think about how I'm living it out. Am I thinking about fighting to keep this central? That's the fight you're in. Don't forget that. There there is a contention in your heart. There's a contention in the church. There's a contention at your work. To keep this central. As you're sharing the gospel. As you're talking and having gospel conversations. This is a, you're going to have to fight for this. It's not going to come easy. To keep this central. We are inadequate. Completely insufficient. And Jesus and his work is completely sufficient. It's done and finished. We don't always fight for that central truth. And that's the fight. Please remember you're in a fight. We're in a fight for this. I think it's also important to remember from this passage that these false teachers that he's talking about in the first half of the chapter, let's, let's remember where they are. Where are these false teachers? They're not running around the cow pasture with funny hats telling everybody to drink a funny drink. That, that's not... These false teachers aren't the boogeyman. These false teachers are right up next to the church. Maybe in it, maybe right up next to it, but they're among us. We are prone to it. You're as prone as I am to drift from this central truth. So we've got to be watchful and careful. And that's why this is an important battle. This is an important fight to keep this central, sound doctrine. It's an important fight. These guys have a lot of people following them. These, these false teachers... They have influence. They have what seems to be some credibility. They're very religious. They're devout, many of them. They they know or they seem to know a lot of facts. And they throw a lot of facts out with their charts and their graphs and their projections. And so they they make it look like they've got some credibility because they talk a lot. And so they're among us. They're around us. They're right up next to us. They are 
Christians. And as you and I move to fight for this sound doctrine, and when we confront each other, when we don't have this central truth in our lives, when we are not talking like and living like this is central and like we're resting in Christ alone, and when we confront one another or we confront a teacher or a preacher or somebody up next to us or around us, it's not easy. Here's primarily the response that I've seen. How dare you? You haven't seen my Christian music collection. How, how dare you confront me and say that I'm not getting this right? I preach Jesus. Yeah, but you're preaching Jesus plus something. Well, that's neither here nor there. I'm preaching Jesus. And that's not sound doctrine to preach Jesus plus anything. And so, it's not easy, believe me. It's heart-wrenching to pull what is, seems like your brother aside to say, bro, you're not preaching the gospel. And it's frustrating. And then you're thinking the whole time, am I being gentle? Am I being respectful as I come to this? It's a hard fight. It's a contention. It's a battle to fight for sound doctrine. It's tiring. It's not an easy fight. Churches don't put on their job descriptions when they're hiring a pastor. I always used to say number eight on the job description was, and anything else we decide we want you to do. And you, you get the seven things that you really want them to do that look like, can we get this joker to come? And then number eight is, and anything else we decide the deacons want you to do. Number nine is never on there. And above all else, whatever you do, pastor, if you come to our church, make sure that as you are preaching sound doctrine and loving us with the gospel time and time and time and again when you preach. And be sure and do that. Make sure you preach the gospel to us over and over and over and over. It's not in the job description for a pastor. And if you see or hear any errant way in us, if you see any of us move off of this central truth that we're inadequate and Jesus is sufficient, if you see us, please call us out on it. Please, please correct us and rebuke us and exhort us and correct us and train us with this gospel truth. It's, it's not natural. Oh, and if you call us out and we don't repent, will you kick us out, please? <laughs> that, that's not how we move naturally towards this confrontation. It's not easy. That's, that's not easy. People aren't asking for this. You're not asking for it. I'm not asking for you to tune me up in it. I don't wake up this morning and going, well, I sure hope this sermon exposes where I'm not trusting Jesus. That's not how typically, you're not going to naturally come in here and go, I sure hope this thing just runs me through and shows me where I don't trust Jesus. It's not easy. You have to fight for it. I have to fight for it with you. You have to fight for it with me. And we have to fight for sound doctrine. Last week, when I was driving around with Hank, his new statement right now is he's devising a plan to get things to go his way. And so he uses a phrase that makes it sound like he's not just really being selfish. It's, how about, fill in the blank. No, just, just throwing it out there. How about, after we run these errands, we go get ice cream? He's not whining. He's not begging. He's not asking. He just, how about... We go get ice cream after we run errands. 
And if he gets his way a few times, then he's like, well, I'll try another how about. So after we had decided to go get ice cream after running errands, it was quiet. It was quiet for about 10 or 15 minutes, and we're driving down the highway to come back home. And he's just staring out the window, and he says, out of the blue, and, his, and he was serious. He wasn't joking. How about you don't give us any more spankings? <laughs> and then he looked at me, and I thought he was maybe kidding. He wasn't kidding. And you're not either, and I'm not either. We're not kidding when we say, how about you just not bring this up? I mean, everything's going okay for me right now. Why do you have to come and show me where I'm not trusting Jesus? That's your bent. That's my bent. That's our nature. I'm not being funny. I just really don't want you to confront me and rebuke me and show me where I'm not trusting Jesus. How about you not do that? That's what we say. That's where I I wake up every morning in that spot. How about God? How about you be pleased with me today and I just you just leave me alone? Brothers, how about you just turn around and not watch me for a while so I can just do what I want? That's what I want to do. That's not natural. So this is a fight to stay in sound doctrine. And it's not easy to correct people. This temptation and this fear involved in confronting people and and saying things that they're not going to want to hear and saying things that might uncover where they're not trusting Jesus, that fear is real. And that temptation to not do that is very, very real. You just think about how difficult it is to continue to discipline kids. You know, you've heard that phrase, you know, choose your battles. And it's hard to continually put gospel boundaries in front of your kids when they're throwing a fit and you're tired and they're tired and you're like, I don't. That's that work and that fight to keep the boundary there. Keep the boundary there. And that's the same fight that we're in to keep it right there. We are inadequate. Jesus is completely sufficient. That's where we keep. We don't move off that. And we got to go back to it. In fact, fighting for it, how we get strength to do that fight, to, to wage that warfare, is by resting in it. So the same thing we rest in, we fight for. And so we have to keep going back. It's not easy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's another reason why this is not easy. Here's the biblical, how about you not teach me the gospel? Here it is right here. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy in his second letter. People are going to come to you and there's going to be people all around who say, how about you not... Correct me in the gospel. Verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Here, when you preach it Sunday, keep this truth next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and Wednesday, and Thursday. You preach this truth. You preach the word. You preach this central sound doctrine over and over and over again, in season and out of season. And exhort with complete patience... And teaching, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's what's happening. That's how about, how about we go get some people who will tell us what we'd like to hear. 
And for a dad or an elder or a deacon who moves in this truth, that comparison to people who are gaining big followings and who are always getting approval and always getting accolades, that's, that's a, that makes the fight even more difficult. To say, what do I got to remember here? I got to keep this truth central. Even if a crowd doesn't follow me. Even if people aren't looking to accumulate me. Even if I'm not one being sought out to be accumulated. No one's asking me to come preach their revival. Whatever. I'm not being accumulated, but what, do I, what is my charge? What's the charge here? Preach the gospel in season and out of season. Over and over and over. Stay there. And that is a fight. That's good warfare to fight for that. That's good warfare to fight for that. And uh, just listen to this, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, this is where we were about a year ago when I preached 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can turn there if you want. In verse 6 and 7. Listen, listen for the fight. If you put these things before the brothers, which is good doctrine, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Having, in other words, having, having nothing to do with silly, funny illustrations that don't illustrate this truth of the gospel. Having nothing to do with silly emails so that people will like it. Look at verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love, faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them. The NIV says, take great pain with this sound doctrine. Work very hard. The King James says, give yourself holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. Give yourself completely to this thing, sound doctrine. Keep it here. Keep it in the middle. Keep it right here. Your inadequacy and Jesus' sufficiency. Take great pains over sound doctrine. Practice, devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keeping it here in sound doctrine means salvation. Means nobody falls away from not listening and not believing in it. We're in a war to fight for sound doctrine and we battle to clear false teaching. We battle to keep it straight and simple. And we move into the complex areas of the gospel through the lens of this simple truth. And then Paul says, back in 1 Timothy 1, he says, hold to the faith. Hold to the faith. Remember, you keep your faith there. So we can get real busy real quick making sure everybody else is getting it. And Paul says, no, no, Timothy, you, you hold the faith. If you're going to keep doing this, you're going to have to remember where you find your rest. Dad, 
mom, grandparents, pastor, deacon, friend, neighbor. If you're going to fight for this sound doctrine, you have to remember, if you're going to be in this fight, you will find your rest and strength at the provision. At the sufficient, complete, finished provision. That's where you'll find your rest. Hold to it. Hold to faith in Jesus. Don't believe the lie that somehow you'll have to trick this up. Don't believe the lie that somehow you'll have to be impressive in it. Trust it and believe it yourself. Pastor, you, mom, dad, you don't, deacon, you don't serve the, you don't just serve the supper. You eat it too. Hold to faith. It's how you fight sin. It's how you fight false teaching. It's how you preach the gospel. And it's how you keep preaching the gospel. How will we stay in this? How will we stay in this fight? We trust Jesus. And, and I, w- I want to be careful to make sure we understand something that I want you to hear me carefully. If, if we jump into this fight of fighting sin, of, of trying to kill sin in our lives, fighting the flesh, as we jump into that fight, if it is not rooted in sound doctrine, which is foremost of sinners, and Jesus is unbelievably patient and merciful, if we don't fight sin with that reality, I'm the foremost of sinners and he is sufficient, I'm going to fight this. That's worship. But fighting sin and our flesh really hard without remembering foremost of sinners is self-righteousness. It's pride. Look at me. Look at me, all this stuff I'm fighting and killing. Look at what I'm not doing anymore. That's self-righteous. Now listen, fighting sound doctrine that's not rooted in a foremost of sinners reality, that Jesus is sufficient, is self-righteous arguing. It's just self-righteous arguing and jousting about the gospel. If I don't come to this fight to keep things straight, knowing that I'm the foremost of sinners, trusting Jesus alone, I will immediately enter into that fight impatient, not gentle, not respectful. And I will make sure that before that fight is over, that contention with somebody is over, this is what I'll make sure. I'm right. And if you don't believe I'm right, I'll keep arguing and fighting with you till you say I'm right. So our fight for sin, our fight for sound doctrine is rooted in, foremost of sinners, Jesus is unbelievably patient and merciful. It must be rooted there. And this is a great implication for the good conscience that he mentions. Next. It's where holding to faith and good conscience are intertwined. I hold to the faith. I rooted in foremost of sinners, I fight for my faith and my rest, and I have a good conscience. That means I'm watching my life. Hear that? I'm watching my life so that it lines up with good faith, sound doctrine. So that's the war, the battle. I battle holding to faith and a good conscience. I hold to the faith. I keep remembering. I keep revisiting. I keep going back to that central sound doctrine. That's how I fight for it. I contend with it in your life. I personally deal with you. You personally deal with me. And we fight for sound doctrine in our lives. We fight to keep that central. And in that fight, I have to watch my life. I have to make sure the life I live, the things that come out of my mouth during the week, line up with a dude who's trusting Jesus, not himself. 
with a guy who knows he's foremost of sinners, trusting Christ completely. Does my life look like that? The fruit of that, the fruit of that worship will inevitably, inevitably be good behavior. But if I chase good behavior without that foremost of sinners reality, is self-righteousness. You get it? There's hold of the faith, sound doctrine. Now watch your life. Make sure it lines up with that. Make sure it, you look like and you live like a guy who trusts Christ completely. Keeping our depravity and Jesus' sufficiency at the forefront of our message will not be something that people's ears itch for. At least not for long. You'll have to fight for this. This Hymenaeus and Alexander. Alexander was even one who, who tried to trick up the resurrection and the return. And it's almost as if this Alexander the coppersmith, if he's saying... Look, people aren't going to stay hooked on this. You're, you're going to have to do something else. You're going to have to speculate about something else to keep them hooked. Because they're not going to just keep coming back for the same thing that they're inadequate and Jesus is sufficient. That's not going to keep them hooked till he comes back. So Alexander just said, you know what? He's already come back. So he added it to it. And so he took people off to this myth. And I wonder if it's not because he was believing. People won't stay hooked on this simple truth. It's not enough. It's not enough to keep people going. It's not coming naturally, and we're in for a fight. Now I want to show you something that's really encouraging to me. How does he stay in this fight? In chapter 1, he says, makes this statement about in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What in the world does that mean? It's very important because he says, it's by these prophecies that you will fight. So it's important. Whatever this prophecy made about you means is important because it's by these prophecies that you'll fight. These prophecies made about you are referring to the endorsement that Timothy received from the church. You hear that? These prophecies made about you, they may have been this special event where a guy stood up and said, Timothy's going to go to Ephesus He's supposed to be a pastor. Maybe. May have, may have happened. Either way, whether it was this specific event of somebody saying it, I don't think that's the case because when we read 1 Timothy 4, he said, remember the prophecies that the elders when they laid hands on you. So that's what I think this is. That's what most scholars think this is. Is that a prophecy made about you is when the elders said, you're supposed to be doing this. The church said, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to fight for sound doctrine. You're supposed to preach the gospel. You're supposed to be a preacher. And that's where he finds encouragement. That's where he finds encouragement to stay and keep going. When I want to quit, when people are being mean, when there's nobody following anymore, and nobody thinks I'm impressive, I keep doing it. Why? Because the church said so. The church endorsed this. And Paul says, I'm giving you this charge, and I'm trusting you with this. Fight. I'm giving you, I'm throwing you into this battle to fight for sound doctrine. And you will fight based on what the church said about you. You're supposed to be doing this. Don't forget that. You're supposed to be doing this. I charge you with this task. We trust you with it. Remember Acts 13 when Paul was, or actually in 11 or 12 when he's running renegade and it says he's wreaking havoc. And nobody's sending him and he's not accountable to anybody. And he, it just says that he's, he's 
looks like he's doing a lot of good evangelization and he's missions man and he's running everywhere. He's getting in fights and arguing with everybody, but nobody sent him. And then in Acts 13, the Spirit tells church leadership, set him apart and send him now. After he's been fitted, after he's been formed, after he's been humbled and accountable in Antioch, he's, the Spirit tells the church leadership, he's ready. Lay your hands on him and send him off. And that's why we stay in it. And this may be for future reference. For some of you, I know some of you are struggling with this phrase calling. Am I called to keep doing this job? Am I called to engage a new ministry? Maybe you feel like God's called you to move over into a different ministry or maybe to go and do something and, and you sense the Spirit stirring that up in you. Listen, just listen. If you ever sense that church leadership or your friends, wise men and women in the faith around you are hesitant or they're not as giddy as you are about it right up front, and they just don't seem, I, I'm, I feel called to this, and why aren't they just getting behind me and pushing me into it? The reason is not because anybody's threatened by your call, and it's not because we're killjoys. If you ever feel called, or you throw that word around calling, and you sense a hesitancy upon people around you, your church leadership, here's why. It's because we know you're about to go into battle, and you're in for a really rough fight. If you're going to do it right, if you're going to do it rightly, biblically, if you're going to enter into any gospel ministry, whether it's children, youth, men's ministry, whatever, if you're going to enter that and it's going to be gospel-centered, man, we got some scars we can show you. It's hard. And so any hesitancy is, you know you're in for a fight do you know that this is not going to be easy? And we want to assess you. So if you ever find yourself thinking, I think I'm supposed to move in this direction in, in a gospel ministry. Are you asking the right questions? Have I been assessed for this work? Have I been equipped by the church for this? Is this a gospel-centered work? I need somebody to affirm that before I head off into it. What does this church say? Does my church say I should be doing this? There's an inherent call to parents in here. You've been called to lead your children in the faith. Okay, so we're affirming that call. That's affirmed weekly here, I believe. When you get that family worship guide, that's us saying, you should be doing this. But that calling goes out to different levels and different ways. And just remember, are you asking the question is, is my church say I'm supposed to be doing this? Because if you head off into that battle and the church says, you're, hey, I haven't said you're supposed to be doing it, you're going to be havoc. And you're setting yourself up to shipwreck your faith when the church hasn't affirmed and endorsed you. It's a big, it's a big deal, these prophecies made about you. And so we look finally at this shipwrecked faith of this Hymenaeus and Alexander. What happened to these guys? What really happened with these two Funny name dudes. Well, their faith wrecked out. They quit, basically. They rejected faith and the church. They rejected sound doctrine. They weren't loving people with the gospel. And either they were kicked out or they walked. We don't know for sure. But they just left. 
And their faith was shipwrecked. Why? They didn't return and revisit the truth of sound doctrine that the gospel is central. That Jesus is adequate. I am not. It wasn't enough for them. It wasn't enough for them. They started believing the lie that they must somehow impress people and gain a following. Because this returning and resting completely in Jesus every week is not going to keep people hooked till he comes back. By believing that they must say what they think people want to hear. And you know what I bet happened? They got accumulated. They got accumulated by itching ears. Itching ears said, ooh, we like that. That's a, that's a neat graph and chart you have there. Come, come teach us some more about all that. That's interesting. That's impressive. Very entertaining. I'll bet you they got accumulated. They rejected faith, which means they rejected rest. You hear that? They rejected really and true, real true rest. They quit resting in Christ alone, and they quit fighting for a life that lines up with that faith. It's interesting to note that there's still hope for this shipwrecked faith. Paul doesn't say when he turns them over to Satan. He's still holding out hope that they'll come back and learn this. I'm, I'm still hoping that they'll come back to sound doctrine. I'm still hoping they'll come back to sound doctrine. I hope they'll come back to this simple truth. So, we rest in Christ alone. Sound doctrine. Rest in Christ alone. Have you caught yourself just resting? Or do you understand that you're in a fight? That we're in a fight together? That your church leadership is in a fight? That we have to be watchful and careful, take great pains? It's a good reminder. We rest, but we're in a tiresome, wearisome fight. Are you fighting to rest? Father, I pray that as we move through the worship service and we continue to trust you and we continue to be pointed in your direction, God, I pray you'd make us a people who are resting in Christ alone and fighting to stay there, that we fight false teaching gently and respectfully and carefully watch what's being said, what's being proclaimed, and that we would love people at cross point well, because we love them continually with the gospel. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, and it's something that we do every week because it's part of our striving. We are inadequate, and Christ is sufficient. So I'm pretty eager to get to it this morning. Uh, throughout the ages, it's always been sort of customary to have a, a feast uh, before or after a war or a battle. And it was interesting, I was, as I was thinking about Brad's sermon and um, fighting to rest, um, this Lord's Supper is sort of a feast between wars, and it's appropriate because in Genesis uh, 14, the first instance where we see the Lord's Supper mentioned in Scripture is right after a pretty major battle between Abram and, uh, and uh, the leadership in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, um, in Genesis 14, verses 11 through 20, this battle says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living in the oaks, remember by Amorite, remember the Amorite uh, brother of Eshel and honor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that the kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them in pursuit of Dan. So essentially, Abram is taking 318 trained men to battle because it's appropriate. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So he didn't just kick their tail. He, like, kept kicking it far. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So he just won this battle. And then Melchizedek, the Old Testament man of mystery who looks a lot like Jesus, brings bread and wine. Listen, after his return from the defeat of Shedderleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet uh, him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said this. Now listen to this. As we're having sort of a feast between wars, the battle has been decisively won, and we keep fighting. So this that we're taking this morning is a feast between wars. And listen to what is said uh, by Melchizedek. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Essentially what Melchizedek says is he looks at Abram and he says, I know why you won. God, I know why you had success. God, I know why you can claim victory. Because God Most High made it so that you can. That's what this is. We claim victory because God's made it so. I know why you can celebrate and feast together. Because God accomplished for you in Christ what you could not accomplish for yourself. So this is a victory feast. The victory is immediately attributed to the Lord. Proverbs 21, 31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Make yourselves ready. Strive. Work hard. And the victory belongs to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is swallowed up in victory. I think the biggest encouragement for me this morning was in Luke 13 uh, that Brad mentioned during his sermon. It was in Luke 13, uh, verse 29. And this is what we're doing. What we're doing here is indicative of something that we will do later. In verse 24, it says, strive to enter through the narrow door. So strive, fight, battle. And then in 29, just five verses later, it says, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That's what we're anticipating when we take this meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I urge you to give thanks and fight to rest. Take and eat. I love it when a song is really good and it gets the doctrine right. That's what that just did. At the end, uh, after the seal's broken, shortly thereafter, there's... You see the rider on the white horse all tatted up coming in, uh, doing work. And, uh, and after that, we feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, we, we take this in eager anticipation of that. So fight to rest and take in remembrance of Christ. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that um, uh, 
you would keep our hearts and our minds captured. I pray, Romans 12, that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Help us to be able to walk in this truth by the work of the Spirit. We are inadequate. Christ is completely sufficient. We proclaim that again and again. We'll do it again next week. We love you and we thank you for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.